This reading is from Revelations chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. In the right hand of the one sitting on the throne, I saw a scroll that had writing on the inside and on the outside, and it was sealed in seven places. I saw a mighty angel ask with a loud voice, Who was worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or see inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, Stop crying and look. The one who has called both the lion from the tribe of Judah and King David's great descendant has won the victory. He will open the book and its seven seals. Then I looked and saw a lamb standing in the centre of the throne that was surrounded by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb looked as if it had once been killed. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. The lamb went over and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. After he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders knelt down before him. Each of them had a harp and a gold bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Then they sang a new song. You are worthy to receive the scroll and open its seals because you are killed. And with your own blood, you bought for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. You let them become kings and serve God as priests, and they will rule on earth. The reading now is taken from Psalm 33, starting at verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nations, nation whose God is the Lord. The people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all. Who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. How on earth does God listen to all our prayers at once? Even if you rephrase that, how in heaven does God listen to all our prayers at once? It's still a valid question. How can I be sure amidst all the cacophony of prayer arising from round the globe all the time, how do I know he's hearing my prayer? It's a valid question. People have very different perceptions 
on the level of engagement God has with the world and with us as individuals. Remember one lady sharing her testimony in church of how she and a friend had been stuck for ages on a plane waiting for it to take off. And she got fed up with this and said to her friend, this is no good, I'm going to pray. And her friend said, you can't bother God with something like this. God has got far bigger things to worry about than our delayed flight. She said, well, you wait and see what happens. She said, and I prayed, and it was no time at all before the plane was in the air. And and there were people listening. She said, actually, that's a bit trivial to bother God. She said, we were getting really uncomfortable on the plane, and something needed to happen. I've spoken to people who have that kind of level of faith, and other people say, actually, you know, I just don't pray for stuff for me because the situation in the world is so bad and, you know, God, the implication is God can't be bothered about me because there are so many more people with needs more desperate than mine. Which camp do you belong to? Are you one of those who is convinced about God being concerned for every detail of your life and constantly taking care of you to the extent of finding you parking spaces? Or do you think, actually, you know, God has bigger fish to fry. Are we right or are we wrong to bother God with prayer requests that in the grand scheme of things perhaps seem relatively trivial? Psalm 33 is a psalm which unashamedly extols God as the one who directs events on the international stage, decides what happens with nations and looks out for and takes care of every single individual. The focus of the psalm becomes more specific as it goes on. There's the initial call to praise, which we began our service with in verses 1 to 5. Then in 6 to 9, the inhabitants of the world are called upon to worship God as the creator, the one who made the heavens by the word and breath of his mouth, who gathered all the waters of the globe together into one place, who established the earth by his word of command. Everything that is, is there because God spoke it into being. Then in verses 10 to 12, God is praised as the Lord of history. The one who brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. The one who frustrates the plans of the peoples. As one commentator puts it, human plans and schemes for all their strength are subject to divine restraint. The Lord's plans and schemes are powerful and perpetual not subject to human restraint. The nation that enjoys God's blessing is the nation whose God is the Lord and whom the Lord has chosen as his inheritance. God, it appears, does have favourites. And, you know, the psalm was written by a member of the House of Israel. Clearly, Israel is God's favoured nation in their eyes today. We might say, well, God has a special plan for Israel. Yes, but, you know, Which nation does God favour these days? How does he organise events on the international stage? How does he control and direct and govern what goes on? And then in verses 13 to 15, the psalmist praises God for his omniscience, his all-seeing eye. He looks down from heaven and sees all mankind. He watches all those who live on earth. All 7.4 billion of us. And he's the one who fashioned each and every 
person's heart, who considers each of us as individuals. Our concerns are his concerns. And he pictures pictures a battle going on. Doesn't matter how strong you are, how good your horse is, the only thing that matters in that situation of danger, he says, is that God's eyes are on those who fear him, on those who hope in his unfailing love. Because these are the people whom he delivers from death and preserves in a time of famine. It's a psalm that expresses quite a breathtaking confidence in the providence of God. And we might say, that's all very well, but it can't be as simple as that. There will be people who speak of how God preserved them in miraculous circumstances because they put their trust in him. The people who aren't preserved don't live to tell the tale, do they? Providence is the view that God is the personal ruler of both individual and universal history. It asserts that the world is not governed by blind chance, not governed by the laws of nature, nor any kind of historical determinism. Everything comes under the control of God, who actively cares for his creation. John Calvin went so far as to say, even raindrops are under his control. As one of the songs that we sometimes sing suggests, does God tell every lightning bolt where it should go? Some people sing that quite happily, other people aren't quite so happy singing that. It's a grand picture. And it's one which does inspire a sense of wonder and worship. But does it square with the reality of how the real world operates? I'm sure I'm not the only one here who enjoyed watching Thunderbirds when I was little. And then enjoyed watching Thunderbirds again when my own children were little. It's a brilliant storyline. Anyone anywhere in the world, can call international rescue and summon the Tracy family immediately to come to their assistance. I ask you. John Tracy seemed to spend his entire time in Thunderbird 5 with his feet up until every week a call came through asking for help. How come he wasn't overwhelmed and inundated by the number of requests of people who found themselves in trouble? Or was it only people with the most expensive radio equipment who could send a signal into space? But how come God isn't overwhelmed by all our prayers? How can he possibly cope with all those prayers coming at the same time and then decide how to answer them all? If you've watched the film Bruce Almighty, you'll remember the scene where Bruce gets so many email prayer requests he decides he will simply deal with them by saying yes to all. And there's a riot because everybody wins the lottery. And because everybody wins the lottery, the prize is worthless. So how can God cope with every single prayer? Well, perhaps he can't, and that's why some prayers get answered and not others. How God can listen to, process, prioritise, answer all those prayers is beyond our comprehension. So many prayers for the world. So many more prayers for individual concerns, needs and desires. We can't understand how he does it and because we can't understand how he does it, it makes us wonder whether he can at all. Yet stop for a minute. 
Think about the internet. Mind-boggling in its complexity and its extent. People are now measuring internet traffic in zettabytes. I'd never heard of a zettabyte before. It's a thousand exabytes. I'd not heard of one of those either. Or a billion terabytes, which I can begin to get my head around. These are figures that defy comprehension, but they show that communication actually is going on all the time within the world at levels that far exceed our understanding. And the human creation of the internet is facilitating that and making it possible. What about your brain? In the news this week, we learned that the human brain can retain a petabyte, that's another new term, a petabyte of data. That's a thousand terabytes. It's just a small fraction of the total level of internet traffic. But it's still the equivalent of 670 million web pages or 4.7 billion books, so long as they're not all the length of War and Peace. But I'm told that your brain and mine contains perhaps as many as 100 billion nerve cells. And those cells communicate with each other through synapses and there are approximately one quadrillion synapses in our brains that are firing all the time. That's one with 15 zeros after it. Each cubic millimetre of our brain contains half a billion synapses. Brain is sending and receiving messages all the time. From your sense organs, for example, four million structures on the skin that are sensitive to pain. Half a million that are sensitive to touch or pressure. 200,000 sensitive to temperature. And so the list goes on and on and on. You want to know how God can cope with impossibly high numbers of prayers all coming at the same time? Look at the level of traffic that your brain copes with. 24 hours a day. And he's the mastermind behind how your brain works. If your brain can do all this and more, we may be led reverently to conclude that the God who made what we've got up here is well up to the task of hearing, processing and answering all those requests that come to him 24 hours a day. And when you think about it, that volume of prayer is one of the reasons why, perhaps from our perspective, our prayers are not answered as we would hope. At a trivial level, you have to reckon that so many prayers are said by people hoping that their football team will win this or that match. Clearly people are praying hard for Leicester this year. But you have to reckon that God sidelines all of those. I draw the line at God being bothered about sports results. Sorry, but I do. Prayers about the weather. Calvin said he controls all the raindrops, but again, you know, to what extent is God involved in that? God does not simply press a button and say yes to all. Otherwise, it would only rain at night. So let's not belittle God either. As if the sole reason for his existence is to answer our requests, as if he was some kind of divine version of Amazon. We send it off and expect it, you know, within three to seven days or 24 hours if we pray really hard. The doctrine of providence is that God is the personal ruler of individual and universal history. 
That means that God is autonomous. He has his own agenda. He actively cares for the world. And his ultimate aim and purpose is for our salvation. And he governs everything from an eternal perspective. So as I've said before, if if God's in charge, prayer has to be less about getting God to do what we want and more about aligning ourselves with his will and purposes. God knows what he's about, sees what he wants to do, and it's our privilege to be involved with that through our prayers. Prayer is a way of asking God to give us the insight into his plans and purposes and for the power of his spirit so we can play our part in bringing those plans and purposes about. The God whom we worship is a relational God. He's Father, Son and Holy Spirit and he made us in his image. We make a mistake if we think of God as just a being who's in control who moves people around like pawns on a chessboard. Nor is prayer a member of bending God's will to accommodate and fit in with our own agenda. Prayer is about building that relationship of trust in God and cooperation with God and his purposes. And where does that leave providence? Leaves us with a God who knows us, who loves us, who does take care of us, who actively seeks our well-being, but who nevertheless has never promised an easy, carefree life. Putting your faith in God does not fast-track you past all life's problems and difficulties. His ultimate purpose is our eternal salvation. And because that is just, mind, again, mind-bogglingly beyond our comprehension, we can't perhaps give it the same level of importance that it merits. But God's ultimate purpose is your eternal salvation. That's what he's working towards at the end. Given the immediacy of our own concerns, it's fair to say probably that eternal life doesn't come top of our priority list all the time. But God knows what he has in store for us in the life beyond this one. And that means his priorities are not going to be the same as ours. Lots of things will happen which we don't understand, that will knock our faith, which I perhaps in this setting I couldn't begin to give an adequate answer this morning. But through it all, God wants us to learn to trust him. And he's also given us the gift of freedom, the capacity to choose what we do and how we live our lives. Our calling is to live independently, but also in a relationship of trust and submission to God's overall authority. And those two things aren't easy to hold together. But they do reflect how we're made. God made us as individuals who find significance in loving relationships with each other and with him. Learning how to do that well is the stuff of prayer. Prayer is seeking and finding his presence, and his will in every situation. Psalm 33 talks about God being faithful to those who are righteous and upright, watching over those who fear him, hoping in his unfailing love, and trusting 
in his holy name. Our part then is to fear him, to hope in him, and to trust him. If we live our lives like that, that doesn't mean to say that God will be at our beck and call. That doesn't mean to say that everything's going to be fine all the time. What God does, how he treats us, how things work out for us, that's his business. He does promise his presence. He does promise his love and his care. He is faithful, listening to, taking into account and answering our prayers with everybody else's. Yes, you are just one in 7.4 billion people. Nothing but a mere speck in the universe. But he created you. He knows you. He loves you. He cares for you. He hears your prayers. Nothing is too insignificant to be taken into account in his divine purposes for that moment, for that day, for eternity. We're going to close with a a prayer written by uh, Bishop of Chartres back in the 10th century. He was born into a peasant family in northern France. This is his prayer. How brief is our span of life compared with the time since you created the universe. How tiny we are compared with the enormity of your universe. How trivial are our concerns compared with the complexity of your universe. How stupid we are compared with the genius of your creation. Yet during every minute and every second of our lives, you are present within and around us. You give your whole and undivided attention to each and every one of us. (coughs) Our concerns are your concerns. And you are infinitely patient with our stupidity. I thank you with all my heart, knowing that my thanks are worthless compared with your greatness.